Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio is what we call it. Friday's beginning at this time. And this week, I want to bring in... Uh, she is, uh, although she won't admit it, but she is a broadcast legend in this country. She has worked for CBC. She's worked for TSN. She's if there's a if there's a three initial name, she's probably worked for it. She was <laughs> until recently the head of Mohawk's broadcasting school. Uh, her name is Sue Prestige. Thanks for coming. In. It's been too long. It has an entire summer has flown by, and we haven't spoken. So I was looking forward to this. Uh, this week we heard this. Um, I don't know what to make of this story that came out of Burlington with Mayor Rick Goldring, the idea that he wants to have water down annexed into Burlington and leave Hamilton. And I, I mean, I had him on here earlier this week. I had Mayor Fred Eisenberger. It was brought up at Queen's Park. It, it, it doesn't strike me as a joke. A lot of people say that there is electioneering going on, that he's in a contest. Whatever the reasons, it was, it was a fascinating proposal, caught everybody off guard. But one thing we never talked about on here, and I want to bring this up with you, Sue, is in the middle of this, we do have a Hamilton ward that exists in partially in the Waterdown area. That's Ward 15. That is, the counselor there is Judy Partridge. Well, when she was asked about this this week, she had, here's a quote from Judy Partridge, who said she was open to discussing East Flamborough, or part of that, moving to Burlington as a solution. Here's her quote. Our taxes in Flamborough are way too high, and I think there is a better deal on the... T- if there is a better deal on the table, that conversation should take place. There's always been a will to go with Burlington, she adds. So, I got thinking about this, and Sue, I can't... I'm, tr- I'm wondering if you are a Hamilton City Councilor paid by Hamilton taxes, are you obligated to be true to Hamilton, to be loyal to Hamilton regardless, or are you loyal to your constituents? And if they think that Burlington would be a better option, you fight for your constituents, even if it means going against the city that pays your salary. One thing I will tell you, I have great respect for Judy Partridge. I think she made a mistake in that she just jumped the gun as soon as this whole issue came up. I think perhaps she should have sat back Watch what was transpiring, because I agree with you. She's paid by, well, she's caught, perhaps caught, between a rock and a hard place. She's being paid by the city of Hamilton as a representative of Ward 15. One of the things she said is that a lot of her constituents, uh, even at amalgamation, said, we don't want to join Hamilton. Which is true. Tax, which is true. But it was true for some other areas that were worried about joining Hamilton because of the taxes. Mm-hmm. So what do you say? That that's justification for handing water down over to Burlington? I don't know. Because from what I've seen, if you drive up Highway 6 past... Uh, Highway 5, yeah. And there's new... Where the Tim Hortons is there and the arena and everything else. Yeah, but going straight up. And I think on the right-hand side, there's now more industry being placed along the highway, which, if I'm not mistaken, would be part of Waterdown Mm -hmm. if Burlington were to take it. Well, what's what's missing here in Hamilton in terms of a tax base? When we lost all the a lot of the industry, steel companies, et cetera, that's when residential taxes started to go up because it was really the main source of taxes for the city. So we want to agree that Waterdown should be part of Burlington. Are we getting compensation for it? Is, is, like, is this a land deal between the two? Well, I asked Mayor Goldring when he, I had him on this week, and I said, you know, some people have 
again, I don't know if they were being serious or not, but have thrown out, okay, fine, give us all their shot and we'll give you water down. I mean, I, I, I don't take any of this too, too seriously, that part of it. And he says, no, 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 this is not a, this is not a trade-off thing. We're not giving something away. We, but why does he want it? Why? He, because he just says... Because there's it, too much density in Burlington's downtown. They need room to expand for residential and for other places to take some pressure off the downtown area. And Waterdown has space to grow. And so this would, with this provincial mandate, I can't remember the name of it now, room to grow plan, mm-hmm. this would fit, he says, with that. And, and I don't doubt that it would fit with that. I have no doubt that this would be very beneficial to Burlington. I don't see the benefit to Hamilton, to be honest, in no, any I way. No, I don't see it at all. And I can see, uh, from what I gathered, because I was away in the middle part of the week, but from what I could gather online, this caught our mayor off guard. Completely. Like, where did this come from? Completely. And, you know, what was his response when he, you know... Like, well, he said that, and, and this has been played, this clip has been played repeatedly here on CHML. Uh, he says, you know, basically, Fred, uh, Rick Goldring owes us an apology for pulling this. Right. And to me, again, you know what? I suppose all is fair to some degree in politics and war. In, in this case, it may be the same thing. Rick Goldring is fighting for re-election. He's got a problem with density. He has a solution that he wants to throw out there and maybe you get the province to jump on board and go along with this. But I go back to the Judy Partridge thing where I I have difficulty with a Hamilton councillor who is supposed to be, in my mind fully loyal to Hamilton to say we're open to maybe considering or having a discussion that may lead to us jumping ship to go to Burlington. My opinion, and I'm with you, she should have, in my mind, she should have either said nothing and said, this is out of the blue for me. I've got to give this some thought. I'm sorry. I I don't have an answer for you right now. Or consult with my voters, right? Or this is not in Hamilton's best interests. And so unless you can convince me of something that has some way this benefits Hamilton, no. But the answer that is sort of out there is, yeah, we're open to this. We're, we could maybe do this. I, I have trouble with that. And as somebody said, is this politicking in that Waterdown would have a large number of the voters in Partridge's Ward, well, right? if it is well, if it is politicking, though, by the mayor of Burlington, yes. I don't know that a councillor in Hamilton wants to get caught up in that. No, and as I said, I think it's coming too quickly on the heels of this proposal by Golding. I think Judy should have sat back, waited to see what was going to happen, and then, and meantime, consulted with the voters in uh, Waterdown. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The War of Waterdown. <laughs> If we could just find one more, we could be the war with water. Then you can have WWW, but then the whole becomes a whole different thing. <laughs> uh, but we're talking about in, Sue Prestige in studio with Scott Radley. We're talking about this situation with Burlington saying we would like to have water. At least the mayor of Burlington say we'd like to have water down. And Ward 15 Councillor Judy Partridge saying, well, I mean, say our taxes in Flamborough are way too high. And I think if there is a better deal on the table, that conversation should take place. That is her quote. And Sue, as I said before the break, I have trouble with that, not with Judy wanting the best for her constituents. I think she should want the best for her constituents, but as long as she is a councillor in the city of Hamilton, I have difficulty with her 
for lack of a better word, throwing shade on Hamilton in any way, not fighting tooth and nail for Hamilton. Now, again, the question is, do you fight for your constituents or for the greater good of the city you're in? But to me, if she's getting a check from Hamilton, if she's running in Hamilton, she should be fighting for Hamilton. There are a lot of people who sometimes say about the council in Hamilton that the problem with the city sometimes is it's so ward specific that mm. there is Fiefdoms. no longer that I there's no longer that idea that we've got to make decisions for this city which are best for the city that you can't just talk about your own ward in isolation this city used to have a board of control and that used to be a very interesting situation where you had a board of control that was in elected, addition to council yes which was elected citywide and not like the senate but you know Sober, Similar enough. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Sober. Sober second thought. thought. And, you know, maybe we're missing that. But what if this happens? What happens if this whole thing just <laughs> dies before the municipal election? Is she, that will be remembered in the debates, even though the issue has died, that see, she stood up and said, well, we should have the discussion now. But see, I think that may benefit her in her ward. I think there are people in her ward who are going to say, we like that you wanted to help us maybe get out of amalgamation because they're still sour about it. The, the bigger issue for me, and it's a, there will be others who disagree. Let's say we go the other way. Let's say that the provincial government actually listens to this. To Burlington. To Burlington and says, huh, interesting idea. Okay, we'll do that. Let's say that this was to happen. Based on the fact that that Waterdown and people in Flamborough are paying higher taxes and feel like their taxes have gone way up since amalgamation and everything else, is there any possibility that if that were to happen, that Ancaster, Stony Creek, Dundas don't immediately line up as well and say, "What about us? We're next. We're out of here. We're having. A, we want to have a break-off vote. We want to go Quebec on you. Exactly. Because we're if if Flamborough can get out of this and pay less taxes, folks in Ancaster were paying less taxes before. Folks in Dundas were paying less taxes. People in Stony Creek were. And then what do you have? Then then you've They've got, got this, a revolt on your hands. Well, first of all, you've got you've got a referendum on separation again, mm-hmm. like Quebec. Then you've got the Soviet bloc breaking up. I mean, it's a mini version of everyone's running for cover with their own thing. And. Listen, I'm I'm not a huge necessarily defender or proponent of the amalgamation that happened back 2000 or whatever mm-hmm. it was, but we're there now. It seems pretty darn difficult to break it all apart at this point without creating chaos. And costing a lot of money, which yes. in turn raises taxes. The other thing I wish I had done is look at a map of Waterdown and find out where the green belt goes through. I mean, how much more can they push... I mean, you, have you been to Waterdown lately? I mean, they have gone way north of Highway 5 mm-hmm. in terms of development. So how much room is left? I mean, I really hope this is not a and deal. And very west of, oh, sorry, very east, east of Highway was, 6. Exactly. There's a lot of stuff built up in there as far as new power centers and other things like that. I hope there is not, and I'm just surmising here, so whatever, um, that they're not doing a deal with Burlington to say, yeah, you can have it, but you know what? We're taking back some of that that green belt. You I mean the know. province? The province. The province. I wouldn't put anything past them at this point. Well, so. he, he, you know, there becomes a whole other issue if it were to go back, and that is of all the residences that are there and all the businesses, that's millions of dollars a year that is Hamilton tax dollars. Correct. That Hamilton has 
paid and, and Fred Eisenberger was on here and listen, I don't agree with everything the mayor says. I don't disagree with everything the mayor says, but he raises a valid point and that is Hamilton has spent millions, I think he used the number of fifty million in the last few years developing that area with the understanding that we've put all these millions in because tax dollars are going to flow back to us to help support other things. Well now you take not only the fifty million, that's gone but you take all the millions of dollars year after year that we're going to support stuff in the city, boy, Hamilton is suddenly kneecapped. I know. And I just, I think it would be just such a, I think it would be a tragedy if it happened. Because as you say, money's already been invested there. It's not like, as you said, you can't suddenly pull it all back. Yet you're, using, you're losing the tax dollars as well on top of it. So it's a no-win situation. I will be interested to see uh, when the election, when the debates, when the all candidates meetings are going on in the next month, though, whether Councillor Partridge, whether Judy Partridge saying what she said, whether that plays as a positive or a negative with the constituents. And again, I think, I think she probably scored points with many of her constituents for this who have been sour about amalgamation since day one. Or she could have opened up a can of worms that, as you said, the other communities are looking at, like Dundas, Ancaster, Stony Creek, et cetera, who don't think they're getting their fair share now. No, and and if she gets reelected, and I expect that she probably will, incumbents generally do, I think she may face some interesting questions around the Hamilton Council table next term about where her loyalties lie. And I'm not, I'm not arguing that Judy Partridge is treasonous or anything like that. I'm saying simply, if you even raise the idea of this, I think people around the council table and in the rest of Hamilton can say, well, wait a second, are you for Hamilton or are you only for Ward 15? And if you're only for Ward 15, as you say, that's, that's, that's part of the problem that we've had in this city of little fiefdoms and people downtown only fighting for downtown stuff and people on the hit mountain only fighting for mountain stuff and people in the suburbs only fighting for suburban stuff. That's what we have to get rid of. And that's not how cities grow. Not no. with that kind of attitude. No. And we've talked about ward redefining and everything else to get rid of that. And this is to me exactly why that has to happen. This to me is a crystal clear example of the what happens if everybody is simply fighting for the area that they are in mm-hmm. rather than the big picture of the entire city. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are certain names that I would be fully okay not bringing up again, not talking about again, because the story was A, so long and so overdone and everything else, but... We never get that kind of break. And so we're going to talk about Gian Gomeshi again moment for a few moments because, first of all, I'm assuming everyone remembers who Gian Gomeshi was. If you didn't, it meant that you were in a cave with Bin Laden or something for the last couple of years because I don't know how else you could have not heard. But he had sort of gone quiet. We hadn't really heard anything about Gian Gomeshi after his acquittal for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden he writes a piece in the New York Review of Books uh, of all places. I don't really understand the why there, but anyway, and it was widely panned as self excusing to some degree, self or correcting things that probably shouldn't have been correct. Anyway, it was, it was widely panned because it was, it was very soft on himself. And this, the editor who okayed, this has now been fired 
And a lot of people are saying Gian Gomeshi should never have been given the opportunity to pen this essay, 3,500 or 4,000 word essay in this magazine. And so while everything I heard about Gian Gomeshi's proclivities, I'm not even talking criminal now, just his behaviors sexually were troubling. I'll, I'll use is, that word. Yeah. I, I'm talking b- b- below the level of criminal, just the other stuff you heard. He was, you know, he was a guy who, who did not sound like he was all that concerned with the well-being of any of the women he was with. It, with. it was all about him. But he did. So, so that part of him, you go, yeah, he, he comes across really like a gigantic pig, quite honestly. But the flip side is he was acquitted. He is not a guilty man in the eyes of the law. So should he be allowed to write these articles? Should people be being fired because a not guilty man wrote an article? I think it was the lack, or people saw it as the lack of Ian Baruma, who's the editor that was fired, his lack of a care when looking at who was writing this article, what he was writing about. Uh, you're right. He, you know... Gomeshi basically got off on the charges. But by the same token, you know, a lot was said about, okay, was it the quality of the, you know, the the women who were testifying, et cetera, et cetera. But it was the tone of this whole article where he didn't say anything about being sorry about what he had done, even though, okay, fine, he, he did admit there were some times when he did treat women perhaps not as well yeah, as, as they could have been. And I think people, I, I really, Auntie Donahue, who's a writer, said, you could either choose to read the piece that was written by Gomeshi or donate to any of the places that uh, provide support for women who are being abused. It was sort of like, oh, do we have to hear his name again? Because we were all witness to the, you know, the testimony, things that had gone on. He had a marvelous lawyer. I will take nothing away from that woman. If I was ever in trouble, I would want her as my lawyer. Me too. But... I think that there was a lot of things that were testified to that perhaps obviously the testimony was questionable and in the eyes of the law, he was not found guilty. In the eyes of the public. Well, two, two very different things. Very, very different things. And in the things. Me Too era, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people for better or for worse, and I'm afraid oftentimes it's for worse, who are convicted before they even get to open their mouth and offer any kind of a defense. And we can argue that too. Uh, but w- it was what Baruma stated. He said, I'm no judge of the rights and wrongs of every allegation. The exact nature of his behavior or how much con- consent there was involved, I have no idea. I mean, it was just so, oh, well, then were you doing well, your job? that's being willfully blind. We're willfully blind, absolutely. And it does not surprise me that he was fired. Although the article I read suggested that they weren't very clear on whether he was fired or he resigned. My bet is that he was fired because the outrage. Well, they, but, uh, you did know, they use the, the phrase creative differences? Creative differences. <laughs> that's, but, that means you were fired. Now, I know the New York Review is obviously a, you know, a prestigious magazine. But I suggested to a friend of mine that I'm wondering if Baruma went ahead with this because magazines are finding themselves in the same situation as newspapers now. They have to find that audience. They have to uh, provide stories that the, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I wonder how many hits the New York Review had up there. I bet they got a ton, an absolute ton. But he, let me go back to my point. He is 
in the eyes of the law, he is not a guilty man. He is guilty of absolutely nothing legally. And there was a time in our society when if you were found not guilty, that meant you were cleared and that meant you were allowed and encouraged to go back to your life because the crimes that were leveled against you, the charges leveled against you turned out not to be sustainable. And you would go back to your job and people would say, all right, he didn't do it. This is, so why should a guy like him not be able, or anyone else, once you're found not guilty, why should you not be able to publish something? Yeah, I don't think it's so much about that as the content of this essay. You know, women should thank me. I was the number, you know, I was the first of the, you know, Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. I mean. The guinea pig. What? You know, seriously, egotist, it doesn't sound like he has changed much from the individual that the women were describing during his his trial. It really doesn't. I don't think he, to this day, I don't think he sees anything terribly wrong, but I think that essay said that he thought he was put upon and that he was embarrassed and, you know, not embarrassed, sorry, that his ego had taken a hit and that what women would, you know, they, as soon as they looked at him and his heart going out to that karaoke bar, I mean, really. I mean, he. I think j- just from his perspective, I think he is a specific case. I agree with you that in a lot of cases, without any proof, people are either being fired. um, Or destroyed. Or destroyed in the process without due process. I mean, how much research has gone into some of the individuals who have been fired, et cetera, is not clear in some cases. But he is an interesting case. We've got to take a break. We're going to come back, though, and explain and talk about why... He is perhaps a different case from some of the others, maybe even from a guy like O.J. Simpson, who was also found not guilty. We'll get back to that when we return. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I never thought we'd be talking about Gian Gomeshi again, to be honest. I never thought that name would pop up in conversation again. And as we were saying last segment, he he wrote a piece, 3,500 words or something, in the uh, New York Review of Books, which has created a furor because Gian Gomeshi and what happened with him and the allegations, surely he shouldn't be allowed to do this. Well, this is my question. I get... Sue, I get very uncomfortable in general with the concept that someone has been acquitted of a crime, but we as a society are going to act as if they weren't acquitted. We're still going to, we don't like the decision. We don't like what the jury did. So we are going to say, well, you're guilty anyway. And in general, that's how I feel very strongly about these things. And we've seen lots of cases where someone has either been found guilty and we... And then later are acquitted and we go, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure still. There's a lot of questions about this, but you mentioned before the break that Gian Gomeshi might be a unique case here, that it's different from someone who was convicted and later was acquitted or was acquitted right off the bat, but there's reasons for that. What what would make him a different case? Okay. A couple of things. Um, He was such a public figure prior to the allegations that came out with him, you know, with him. So incredibly popular. Turned out he lied about all those wonderful monologues he gave at the beginning of his program. They were written by someone else. Uh, the fact that... We don't have writers was, here at CHML, by the yeah. way. We do it ourselves, <laughs> just for the record. Anything we say is ours. Uh, and, you know, kudos <laughs> to you. Uh, but also, the the trial was 
unbelievable. I mean, in a lot of cases, we have uh, situations where people are accused of certain things, and they're fired. And perhaps the trial takes place a little later, but his was, you know, wall-to-wall national coverage. He was a national broadcaster, in a sense. It wasn't just a local radio station that he was working for. And I don't think the outcry is so much about the fact that he was allowed to write it. It was the content content. of it. Because it was so poor me. And for all the women that... That I was going to say he was guilty of, but he, you know, in the court of law, he was not guilty. But the impact on the number of women uh, that testified, the stories that other women were telling other women, and for him to write an article where it's all about poor me, and women should be thanking me because, you know, I brought this all to light. I was first me too. Really, it makes the skin crawl. And you're right. I was really kind of hoping we never hear Gian Gomeshi. I thought he might go to Europe, mm. you know, and come do a, uh, an online podcast or do something like that. But for him to surface this way, I think, was just a slap in the face to a, a lot of women. See, I go back to my point. I, I, I'm very skittish about banning someone or barring someone or the, the court of public opinion determining guilt when guilt was not found. And so that... That in that case, and and that that's not exactly here, but that's in those cases. In some of these cases, I get very worried about. I just finished watching on on Netflix uh, a fascinating series that I would highly encourage people to watch. It's totally addictive, and if only watch it if you've got some time. It's called The Staircase, and it's about a murder trial of a man charged with killing his woman. A writer, as it turns out. Um, you can decide by the end whether you think he's guilty or not. There was plenty of, there were different things each side, but you're left with making a decision yourself. But I'm but not it, arguing that he didn't have the right to write the article. No. And, and, but a lot of people are. A lot of people are saying that. And my issue here is generally I would say if you're acquitted in court, you should be able to go back and do whatever you want in your life as you were before This is the one case that I would say the difference is there's enough evidence, not only that came up in court, but that has been self-admitted of absolutely piggish behavior that even if you leave out the charges, even if you remove the criminal part of this and just go by the behavior that he is acknowledging, I would say if I'm an editor, I can say, I'm not sure I want someone who's that much of a jerk. But the editor claimed, I mean, I really don't care. It I really, was the, it was and the article. That to me, in this particular case, the outcry about this, I can understand and be okay with the outcry, even though he was acquitted. Because even if you remove the criminal charges from this discussion, I say his behavior made him enough of a jerk that I would not want him writing a piece like this in the article. And it was Buruma who paid the price. That's right. right? He loses his job, which means that the outcry came from a lot more than just, you know, let's say women of Toronto. It was worldwide. But if you had been charged, if Sue Prestige, if someone accused you of something and you went to trial and you were found not guilty and there wasn't all the extra baggage stuff that went along, if you weren't being a pig all the way along, when you were acquitted, you should be able to go and do back to your life and do what you want. Whether that's realistic or not is a different thing. Our society now with social media and everything else, we have a court of public opinion that decides very quickly and very ruthlessly how you, whether you're going to be allowed to enter life again. Tell me this. Do you think, do you think the outcry would have been, oh my gosh, Gian Gomeshi has written an article about carpentry 
or electrical work or something it's like a, that. It's a good question. It was oh, it was the content and the, his attitude. Now, if he had written this, we got to go to break. If he had written this as a full, heartfelt mea culpa, not admitting to crimes, but saying, you know what, my behavior was disgraceful, and I'm here to tell you, I didn't commit crimes, but everything else I did. I feel immense shame for, and I just wish I could go back and undo it all. Would people have complained about that article? Maybe, but I don't think nearly like oh, we no, are now. Oh, Garuma would still have a job, probably. It is a tricky one, though. It is a very tricky thing in our society about, especially with social media, and especially with how quick we are to come to conclusions and create this tidal wave of whatever. If someone is acquitted... Are they really acquitted anymore in our society? Yes, memory is very long. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't even, I don't even, there's part of me that doesn't even want to talk about this because it's such an old story and yet it's so frustrating because it's such an old story. And that is the NHL preseason is on right now and Max Domi, son of Ty, (laughs) noted Maple Leaf goon and terrible, terrible commercial actor. Yes. Maybe, arguably, not even arguably, the worst commercial on TV right now. Possibly. Taidomi, his his over-smiling in that commercial is creepy. He gets the tough guys. Oh, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so Max, his son, is playing a game against Florida. I think it was the first preseason game for the Montreal Canadiens, a team he's now with. And uh, a defenseman for Florida had give him a little bit of a chop on the legs or whatever. So Max decides he's going to want to fight this guy. Well, the defenseman has had a history of concussions, clearly does not want to fight, doesn't engage in any way. Domi has him grabbed by the collar, gives him a couple shots in the face, then drops his glove and bare knuckles, slams him in the face with a sucker punch, breaks his nose, gives him two black eyes and a cut, bleaking all over the place. Simple for the NHL, right? This this is a simple one for the player safety slash discipline department. Evidence is all over there. And what they give Max Domi is a suspension for the rest of the preseason. For meaningless games. Meaningless games that most of the players don't want to play when they are not being paid any money. So he loses no money. He gets a vacation for the rest of the preseason, and it means nothing to his team. Sue, how is it that the NHL player safety, that's what they call it, ironically, department, the discipline department, no matter who's in charge, no matter who's involved, always seems to get these things wrong. They always seem to get these things wrong. And in this particular case, I mean, there's a code among players in the preseason, especially in the preseason, to say, we're not going to hurt each other. You know, let's save it for the big Getting games, in shape, I guess. Figuring stuff out. Exactly. These games mean nothing. Let it go. Uh, in the case of Domi, he had not had a good game to this point. I'm not, I'm not certainly not using that as an excuse. But for him to lose it, and you did you see the picture? Several times. Oh, my gosh. But the the um, the picture of Ekblad. Ex- Ekblad, yep. Aaron Ekblad. He's with his, his two He looks like a eyes. raccoon. He did, and as you pointed out, he's had concussions before. Uh, I can't. I find it astounding that it's only five games, and where is the financial penalty? Well, there's nothing, and again, it just you look at this and you say to yourself, this should be so easy for the NHL. It should that you look at this and you say, we're trying to get fighting out of the game. We're trying to get cheap shots out of the game. We're trying. We keep saying we're trying to get concussions out of the game. 
We're trying to protect our players. So you say, you know what? If you want to do this, you are going to pay a price. This is going to cost you. And, and you know, it, it, people will still scoff at what I'm going to say because they'll probably still say it's too lenient. But I thought for a guy who doesn't really have a history of suspensions, five games would be a good starting point if you want to be serious about this. And that would be something that at least might, might get some people's attention for down the road and say, hmm, that's, that's, this is the new world we're in. And this was not, see, this is the thing. So this was not two willing participants who dropped the gloves and wanted to have a exactly. scrap. And I, again, people may disagree. I still don't have a problem with that. I hate the staged fights where two giant goons, we've got rid of that, but where they start the game and drop their gloves at the opening face-off, that, that's got nothing to do with exactly. anything. But if you let off steam in a game and two guys are wanting to go, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. This was not that. No, and you know, as you pointed out, the NHL have these conversations with the public. We're getting rid of violence in the game, et cetera, et cetera. Well, really, something like this, violence begats violence. Because you have Roberta Longo saying what Domi did was a gutless move. Absolutely true. Everybody believes that. But he almost... He follows it up. He says there's retribution for this, yep. and it's going to come. Those two teams meet again, I think, December 28th. And whose fault will it be if that happens? The NHL. Absolutely it will be. Because if the NHL had penalized Domi in a way that satisfied the players on Florida's team that he was being penalized. And sent a message to everyone else. They would say, okay, it was taken care of. Someone may still decide to give him a shot. But it now they feel like all the players, I think, I really believe this, all the players feel like, well, you know what? The NHL will not police this game properly, so we have to. That's what I truly believe they believe. And this is what I could not believe out of Domi's mouth. The quote was, by no means did I want to hurt him. Really? Then why Why did you take your fist and put it in his face? The other part about this, Sue, that I've never understood, I've never understood this in any professional sports league, is that Domi got credit because Ekblad did not suffer a serious injury or another concussion. So had Ekblad, as it turns out, with his concussion history, had he suffered a concussion, let's say he was lost, he's their Florida's best defenseman, he's a key piece of their team. Let's say he had to miss 30 games this year because he had a concussion. Domi probably would have got a more significant penalty. Well, the what his intent was and what his action was, there was no, he did what he did. The outcome is a fluke. It's like driving drunk. You might hit someone and kill them, you might get home without anything, but that doesn't mean that somehow you were a good drunk driver. It means you were lucky. Exactly. Max Domi is lucky that he doesn't have a concussion, but he shouldn't get credit for that because he very easily could, you should get penalized for what could happen based on your actions. I, yeah, I totally agree. But the fa- And the fact, the fact that he had an individual in front of him who did not want to fight, you know, this was, that's to me absolutely... The, str- the strangest thing, but you're not smart. He may consider, Domi may consider himself smart because he dodged a bullet. I mean, at least according to us, five games, a preseason, big deal. But who knows what's going to happen. But as they say, I think all it's doing is upping the violence quota in hockey when the NHL allows something like this 
to go through really without a big penalty. So why can the NHL, why does the NHL blow this so often? Because we talk, we, we have these discussions regularly. Oh, someone did something and always, almost always people at the end of this, when we hear what the suspension is go, really? Like that's what you're giving the guy? Well, I mean, let's face it. It's a professional sport and a professional sport is about money. Yeah. You're not going to take out, you've got people that are buying those jerseys with Domi on the back. But you've got people you know, buying Ekblad jerseys I too. I agree. But, you know, it's like gladiators. <laughs> they didn't fill, the, you know, those stands with people who didn't want to see, you know, the guy take on the lion, et cetera. So I still think it's about money, that they don't want to take it. I'm not sure they're true to their word about taking total violence out of the game. Come on. I think what they're saying is, you know, we'll push it a bit and, you know, give a, a pretty good indication that we're sort of giving out penalties, but nobody's committed to it because of the amount of money that's tied up in the NHL, be it the professional teams, be it the sponsors, be it the agents of the players themselves. I don't have, I don't want all the violence to be gone. And I don't mean the violent, like I, I, as I said, I'm okay with two willing people who want to have a fight. I'm not okay with someone with their face to the glass and who's not doing anything. And someone comes in and drives him face first from behind into the, if I'm okay with the quote, quote violence, not really violence, but in some ways, if it's, if you're agreeing to it. There's a social contract almost when you step on the ice that if you do something, you, if you're agreeing to it, okay, you're, you're responsible for yourself if you agree to that stuff. If you're a fighter, I have huge problems with guys who made a career as a fighter turning around later and suing the NHL saying, I had concussions. You got paid handsomely for a decision you made to follow this career. That's your fault. But if someone gets drilled from behind into the board's not willingly and suffers a concussion that ends his career, he's got a gripe. I think he's got a severe gripe. I might agree or disagree with you on the concussion protocol thing, though, because I think for a long time, some of the players did not realize because they were just being thrown right back into the game. You know, okay, yeah. What do they call it when you hit your head? There was a just a flippant name for it. Seeing stars. I saw stars, right? And... It was wrong. And then as information came out, these same players came back and said, you know, that team doctor or that team trainer or that team coach sent me back into the game, even though, though you started to come up with research showing you're getting your head, your brain banged around in there pretty consistently. And did they protect them? I don't think so. So I'm not sure it's a choice. Well, I've said this before on this show, and I I don't want to be too repetitive, but... I believe there's a very simple answer to all of this that will never be done because it's too simple and because it will take power away from certain people's hands. And that is, I think the NHL should turn to the players union and say, we are out of the discipline business. This is now your responsibility. You represent both of these players. They are both paying union dues to you. You sort out what the penalty will be because you know what? You now have to go to Aaron Ekblad who is paying union dues to you. And if you want to give Max Domi no significant penalty, you go and tell Aaron Ekblad what his union dues are paying for and why he is not being given the respect that he should have as a person who's, why should only Max Domi be protected in this? I think if you gave it to the Players Association, a lot of this would be sorted out because then all of a sudden the guys who are the victims are going to say, look, you either suspend him properly or I'm just... I'm withdrawing my union. I'm not even going to pay you anymore. 
go ahead and take me to court. I, I think that if you put the onus on them, we might have a very different response to this. Yeah, maybe, but I just think also with the Players Association, what are you going to do with the Players Association? Who makes the decision within the Players Association? Who has a grudge against so-and-so who got his brain rattled last week and says, you know, actually great. I was hoping that might happen to him. That kind of thing. So nice thought, but I still think it's going to be not the player's decision, not the association's decision. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This story this week was one of the most head-scratching things I've seen in a long, long time, and that is that WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, votes 9-2 to to let Russia back Back into the Olympics and be done with their probation and all the rest of the stuff. This is after the whole thing that if you watch the movie Icarus, which is on Netflix, which explains this statewide, elaborate, unbelievable doping scheme that they put together... They were banned from the last Olympics, but now they're allowed back in. So I get it. I would understand this. I'd be disappointed, but I would understand it if this was the IOC who wants Russia back in because you're saying, well, there's a lot of money in Russia. We need to have them in the games. This is the world anti-doping agency. What are they doing? I don't know that. I think they're disappointing a lot of people. Yes, they are. Especially the athletes. Uh, If you listen to, uh, you know, Becky Scott, the Canadian Olympian who sits on WADA as an athlete who decided this week after the decision was made that she was not going to be a member of that anymore, uh, that how in the world did they think that this would be accepted worldwide? I mean, you know, you're hearing from everyone, not just athletes themselves. But, well, for one, uh, Richard McLaren, who was a Canadian lawyer who was sort of charged and looking into the, the claims. Well, he did the report that he led did the to report. this whole thing. And, you know, he suspects, according to McLaren, he suspects that there's loopholes that the Russians have found in what the WADA has told them that they have to do. And they have to Uh, supposedly Russia has to accept McLaren's report and give access to the Moscow lab. They haven't done either one of those. And now they've got a six-month, apparently to December 31st, um, to provide the lab's data and things about the facilities. But they've got ways of of loopholes about getting around that. And they've never even admitted. And they've never admitted to anything that McLaren, and as you say, if anybody has not seen Icarus, do themselves a favor and, and watch it. If not, 60 Minutes, I think, had a, a long interview yeah. with the, the man the who decided to leave uh, Russia. You will watch Icarus, and it starts out not about this. It starts out about something else. And the guy who's doing this documentary, which is actually about, it was, if you remember the, the movie that the guy did called Supersize Me, which mm-hmm. was about eating McDonald's every day to see what would happen. Icarus was about a guy who was a recreational sort of competitive cyclist who decided I'm going to see what happens if I actually take steroids and how good I could get. He was doing a one, you know, a thing, first person thing. <laughs> kind of like eating McDonald's, but well, not. It, yeah, kind of, <laughs> but it was, it was a test of his own body to see what would happen. And he stumbles onto this unbelievable steroid thing. It's it, again, you, you will think that it's probably not even true because it's so out there. And again, if the point that I come to with this is if we have now reached the point where the group, the governing body overseeing anti-doping in the world is this spineless and this willing to capitulate, 
what hope does sports have that there's not going to be doping? To me, to me now, you know what? If WADA is going to vote nine to two to let Russia back in, my vote is let's just drop doping altogether because it's hopeless. Why even chase the ghost? Let people do like Phil Hartman in that Saturday Night Live skit where it was the all doping Olympics. Yes. Who cares? There's, if WADA is not going to stand firm on this, you have no hope. I agree that the first thought that I had when I heard about this was how disappointing this must be for clean athletes who are training for the next Olympics or the next world championships to hear this, to say, what am I even bothering training for? It's a given. I can't get to the top of that podium for sure. I'll be lucky to place. And do I really want to be a fourth, fifth, sixth or whatever? on the world stage after all this training, if they're just going to, you know. When you're talking about fractions of seconds separating people and you realize the effect the steroids can have on people, you can train for years to shave half a second. I was talking about Jesse Lumsden, who's been on the show talking about the Icarus thing and the, and all the training that he did and his team did for bobsleigh was to shave five hundredths of a second in a year off their start time, maybe a tenth of a second if it was a tremendous year. Mm -hmm. And then you go and have someone shoot themselves up and you can shave two tenths or three tenths off. How how can I compete with that? Here is a story for you because back in 1984, I was the host of a series called Olympic Journey. And we traveled around the world. We went to East Berlin. We, you know, we talked to... Uh, a number of the scientists there who were kind of not telling us truth, but it was a good trip. <laughs> but we talked to athletes who had been given drugs, steroids, et cetera, by their coaches. And the after effects of, of that were, were so sad. You know, where there was cancer. Oh, yeah. There was chance that they couldn't have children. They were infertile. Um, you know, athletes that suddenly walked into a dressing room and were faced, these are clean athletes, usually female athletes, which would walk in and thought that they were in the wrong dressing room because they were seeing the back of these women who were now like six foot two and double the, the width of their shoulders, et cetera. These were athletes that they had seen a year before that didn't look like these athletes. So in 1984, uh, the World Doping Agency, the center was in Montreal at one point. And uh, we went there and all the talk about we can achieve this and this is how tough it's going to be to take drugs and we're going to fall. That's 1984. And look at how far we've come. Sure, we've cleaned up part of the act. I think everybody was thrilled, to be honest, when uh, WADA brought down the whole idea of Russia, you're no longer part of it, your athletes can't compete, etc. And to have this happen, it's like it's going back half a century. And as I say, I feel sorry for future athletes. That's who I feel sorry for. And not just future athletes outside of Russia. Th- those ones for sure, because now you're going to be lining up competing and going, are we competing against people? Is this even a fair fight? But I said this on a show yesterday as well. For the Russian athletes, few or many, we don't know who are clean. And we don't know because the way the system was set up, we have no way of knowing if any or if some of them were or weren't. If Sue Prestige was a Russian athlete who decided that she, you were not going to take drugs and you won a medal, nobody's going to believe that. No. Every Russian athlete, clean or not, who wins a medal now, was. everyone's going to just assume is dirty. So you've also 
tainted the water, soiled the water for every clean, however many there are, Russian athlete. It's unfair to everybody. And again, I go back to the point. If the World Anti-Doping Agency, the group that, the group that is tasked with cleaning up the world of sports, if it has basically thrown in the towel, what's the point? And you know, you're, you pointed out, you know, if this had been the IOC, maybe the athletes are now going to go to the IOC and say, you know what? Maybe we won't compete in the Olympics. Maybe with one month to go before the Olympics, we'll say, why don't you let, okay, make it the Russia games because we're not coming. Wow. We would that send a statement? It's not going to happen, but it would be a nice thought. Um, I don't know. I hate. I would hope that broadcasters too are going to get into the act because they pay a lot of money for the rights for Olympics and for international competition. For them to, you know, at least put some pressure on those responsible to say, do you think that people are going to tune in to actually see an event where they believe that the Russian athletes are winning these medals, not because they're good, but because they are, you know, pumped up? The the trick is going to be, Sue, we got to go here. The trick sure. is going to be, we now live in a time where broadcasters, for example, pay so much money for Olympic rights that there's no incentive for them to do hard journalism on this because you don't want to send viewers away. You don't want to make these games not look like they are a wonderful, fun time that everyone's having and that we're, you don't, it's very difficult. Unless something like Ben Johnson happens, it's very difficult to convince, I think, the host broadcaster who's paid tens of hundreds of millions of dollars to throw black dye into the pool and say, oh, everything's fine. But if their numbers go down, that means well, then they're, they're their sponsors are going to say, hey, we paid you a lot of money to advertise in your Olympic coverage and your numbers stink. Yeah. It, it, maybe. Maybe if people turn on it, mm -hmm. that's when something starts to happen. We'll see. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.